0: Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So, whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season, you can save time by getting fall sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. i've been in dogs since 1991 we breed dogs that we want to train i was out here in western nebraska riding harleys and training dogs i don't sugarcoat anything and if you don't like it tough
1: Welcome to another podcast episode of the Flatlander Kennels podcast with Chris Job. And we are joined once again with Ray Voight. Last time we talked about marking. If you haven't heard that, make sure and check it out. Today, we have gathered a bunch of questions on the Facebook group. And if you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, it is Flatlander Kennels podcast. Come join us way you can interact with everyone and answer questions and, and see things that we post over there. So let's go ahead and turn it over right now to Chris and Ray.
0: Hi guys, Ray. Thanks for joining us again. And um, we got the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Ray Voigt, joining us. We're going to do a bunch of questions and
2: answers here. Ray, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks again for having me. I uh, really enjoyed the last one and uh, looking forward to, hopefully answering some questions for some people and having some more good dog discussion.
0: Good. Well, we got these questions off our Facebook page. If you guys want any questions answered by me or some guests or whoever, go ahead and put those on the Facebook page and we'll, we'll get to them eventually. Not going to happen right away, but we will get to them. Um, I'm going to let Elliot take this over. He's going to read the name of the person submitting it. The question and then we're just gonna answer. We're gonna try to go as quickly as we can. We got about 10 of them, eight to ten of them we need to do. And we're gonna try to stay on topic <laughs> a little bit better than Chris <laughs> and I last time. And we're just gonna keep going.
1: All right, let's kick it right off. This first one is Jake Wirtz, and he asks How do you deal with a dog that is vocal on the honor bucket? Dog is steady on the honor and steady and non vocal while working. Sometimes barks at first bird thrown while honoring and sometimes is only vocal when the dog is sent.
0: Ray, I'm going to let you take that one, buddy.
2: I was just going to have say the same thing to you. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, I think that's a tough one. And I think there's several factors. One would be how often do you get to honor in training? Um, if the only time the dog you know, if you train by yourself and with some devices, and the, um, you it's hard to replicate the excitement of a test. And if that's the only time that this happens, then it's going to be uh, very difficult. But my recommendation would be to try to get in with a bigger group or some place where you can try to replicate a little bit more of a test setting and spend extra time on the honor. I mean, I don't know that just, you know, burning them and correcting them is going to make it better. I think it has to be a patience factor, and that dog's just going to have to sit it out. You know, I'm not saying you let them get away with it, but it's going to have to be some sort of uh, combination of maybe some correction when they get vocal and the repetition of being being able to put that dog in that position enough times to to try to look to get them to understand the difference of when yeah. what's acceptable and what isn't. I'll tell you a couple
0: things that I have done over the years. Um, Jake, what you, you, what you really need to do is you need to get to a training group and whether it be drive here or wherever you want to go, you really need to get up, go to a training group. Like you're going to a hunt test and, when you get to that training group, try, it's going to be very hard for you to do, but make it look like a test as much as possible. Um, when you come out, get your dog ready like you normally come out. Do not put a collar on your dog. Do not um, correct your dog for anything. Get up, run your setup, whether that dog, no collar. I'm talking zero collar, right? Zero collar. And, and whether your dog, you know, is creepy, you know, now you're worried about the honor. That's what you said. You're worried. So let's focus on just the honor. If that dog has cash refusal, it doesn't really matter. Don't yell at it like you're, you know, act like you're at a hunt test. Run it just like you're at a hunt test. And then when you move to the honor, just like a hunt test, and the, now when that dog gets vocal, I would probably get physical with the dog. Um Maybe grab its muzzle, say "quiet, sit." Maybe grab it because now, now that dog thinks it's at a hunt test, and you've tricked it. You've traveled. You stayed at the Holiday Inn Express. You, you went to a hunt test. He thinks he's at a hunt test. That's how you try to trick that dog. Um, we do that all the time when we go to the Grand or the National. The first day, none of us run with a collar on. Because if we got any kind of dogs with need line corrections, that's where we'll get It's the very, very first day. As soon as that dog hears a yip or a yipe from another dog in your training group, it's over. They realize they're training. It's done. So you got to try to trick that dog somehow. Another thing, and that that has worked. Another thing I've done is I, and you're going to have to do a training group again. I have staked out a dog on the honor. you have a working dog, an honor dog, and then I just move over and stake your dog out all day and let it just watch and watch and watch. And then if it starts to get vocal, you give them a correction, whether it's a healing stick or something like that, whatever you decide to do. And I've done that so much where the dogs, by the end of the day, aren't even watching the birds coming out. They're looking the other way. So like Ray said, you've got to get lots and lots and lots of repetitions and there's no other better way than to stake that dog out close to line, and you manage that dog, and you just sit there. And if you can find a training group with fifty dogs, you run, you run fifth or sixth dog, and you let it sit there all day long. And if it makes noise, then you give it a correction.
2: Right. <clears throat> and right. I do, I like the idea of personally. I like the idea of more of a it coming from you versus a caller. I, I think that I, do, I, no. I think correcting a. Correcting a dog for noise with the collar almost amps them up even more, creates some anxiety, and tends to even cause more noise than getting the desired response. Yeah.
0: Because here's the thing, Jake. That dog has to be worried about you snatching it up. And if it thinks it's at a test or something, and you still snatch it up, he may think twice about it, right? So, and then stake that dog out, and then and your correction should be. More of a physical type correction, not like, like Ray said, not a collar, but more of a physical type correction, and that's and I'm going to tell you that's a really hard one to fix. It, it's a it's extremely hard one to fix, but um, and then you may want to start stop running some tests for a while if, if that's developing, and you need to really rethink it, what's going on. Is The dog's super young, is it you know high power? What you need to think about what's causing that
2: you know but to happen so. Yeah, that was exactly what I was about to say is I would stop running it, stop putting it in the position in the trial or in the test to to make a mistake that you can't do anything about and just try to try to recreate it and try to get it to come out in training. And the worst thing would be starting to work on it in training, making a couple corrections, maybe starting to get a little bit better, and then you put him in a test and he gets away with it. You just went right back to square one, if not that and and even worse yeah even worse because and another thing
0: too if you're running and i think it's jake i know who it is if you're running hrc there's nothing wrong with running saturday only or sunday only um maybe it's it's quiet on saturday but sunday it's really wound up because it's day two just run one day there's no there's nothing that says you have to run two days and and at the test. I find it hard to believe that the dog is perfect. It's a working dog, but super vocal as an honor dog. So if you go to a test, like Gray said, and if that dog slips up at all as a working dog, creeping anything at all, you have got to pick
2: that dog up before you get to the honor. You know, and the, and one so. one more thing to add on to that, Chris would be. I would try to make my, depending on the, the stage, of, the age and stage of the dog, but if it's a more advanced dog, I would be trying to challenge that dog in training. I would be making all my tests harder. I would challenge that dog more. I would put it, doesn't, challenging them more doesn't mean necessarily doesn't mean more correction, but it means setting up harder, more difficult tests. And that inadvertently is going to make that dog think a little bit more and maybe take them, you know, have them just be a little bit calmer because they're worried about what's happening out in the field because they got they really got to buckle down and try. And some I've seen that work for dogs that are a little noisy too.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it almost takes their mind off what they're doing. It's almost like indirect pressure yeah. <laughs> a little bit, you know. <laughs> okay,
2: next.
1: All right, next question comes from Hunter Roanfelt. When asking for a whistle, what is a good way to fix a lazy sit? When she is healing or close and I whistle, she sits right down. But sometimes at a distance, you can watch her hear the whistle, take a couple more steps, then kind of sit to the
0: side and look back at me. Okay. Well, I'll do, I'll begin this deal. Hopefully your basics are done right. Hopefully you've done everything in your power. But in the field, what I usually do is, you know, you blow the sit whistle and if you don't immediately see them shutting down and really trying to stop, I'll give them a collar correction followed by another sit whistle um, is what I would do.
1: Continuous or right? Nick?
0: I, I use, I don't like the Nick mode. I use, I call it a continuous Nick. Mm-hmm. I use the continuous button and that way I can control the length of the correction um, or multiple cr- corrections in a row are you holding but it down I, until
1: the butt hits the ground or are you it, just it, is it, this it,
0: you know what it all depends on the dog i've had dogs that you do that they've come from other trainers and other places if you do that they jump all over the place um and then and then they're even it's even worse i've had some dogs you can give a little continuous nick and it it, it firms them right up it really on if you got a really jittery type dog that doesn't handle pressure very well and may make it worse by jumping all over the place with a continuous. Okay. Um, Ila sit, Nick sit, as I usually say. Ray, what do you think?
2: Yeah, same thing. I mean, some of those dogs they'll almost, you know, they can almost tense up with the like they'll almost like clam up with that constant continuous pressure yeah. where yeah. where it almost makes them crouch more instead of getting their butt down faster. Um, yeah, it's pretty similar. I mean, my correction would be a blow the whistle when I read that effort of not trying to stop, I blow the second whistle with the correction where you, you know, so very similar, um, you know, so I would, I toot, I start to, I start to see lack of effort. I blow a second whistle with the, with the correction. Um, as far as the crookedness or my first thing would be to go back to the yard and do a pile or even a little bit longer distance pile where I could, check it out, make sure they're sitting very crisply and straight at a smaller scale. I know you said it happens mostly at a distance, but, you know, you could go back. If you do a pile, all of a sudden, if you let them go, you have a, you know, 30 yard pile and you let them get 20 or 25 yards before you blow the whistle, you might see a real lack of effort to stop and you can address it in a short, in a, um, in a little more controlled environment than out at the end of a landline. Um, the crooked part, I've tended to um, do a little toot toot or a little like a half bow. Yeah. You know, you kind of duck down a little yeah. bit with yeah. a toot toot and they start to. Um, and then as soon as they straighten up, you'd make sure you blow another whistle and make sure they're not continuing to come in and just kind of straighten. Again, I'd tend to try to teach that on the pile before you know 200 yards on the end of a blind but that would be my yeah. deal and once they understand that the if they sit real crooked i mean you could even do a little toot toot with a nick or a little that little dip with a nick and they ought to understand to straighten up
0: yeah and and what your what listeners what what ray's getting to is in, in sit the pile um we I do the same thing you do. You blow the sit whistle, um, and they may be a little bit crooked, and you just you go tweet, tweet like almost like a come in whistle as you bend down, and then when they are squared up, you go tweet and you stand up, and then and in the field, and then when you get to the field, you can literally go tweet, and then I still do this on my advanced talks to the day on some of them. I can just bend down a little bit, and they'll straighten right up, and then you off you go. And then your pile work, um, you need to make sure like that's a great tool too, is, is make sure the bumpers are visible, cut mode grass. The more visible they are, the more excitement it's going to be, the faster they're going to run and you'll be able to work on your whistles. It's a lot better that way. Yeah.
2: I mean, I tend to go back. If I see a problem creeping up, I tend to go back to the simplest form first to make sure everything checks out. And if I need to, to something like that, where there's, where you might need it, where you're going to need a correction, whether it's a slow sit or a crooked sit or um, some other mechanical things. I just like to go back and, and basically revisit it and make sure they understand what that correction is for and how to properly turn it off. Right. So whether yep. you're getting a dog from somebody else or um, you know, we all love to think that all the basics are perfect on every dog some of which you know we've done and we get a little lax on some stuff and we have to go back and fix something Um, but i'd like to i'd like to go back to that simplest form reintroduce the the command correction sequence how i want to do it and make sure that dog understands what it's getting corrected for how to properly turn that correction off and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be perfect when you go out in the field but it gives you a tool when you address it or when you use that correction in the field, the dog got to understand how to respond properly. Correct. Simplify,
0: simplify, check your steps, then move forward. All right. All right. All right.
1: This one ties uh, right back into the same topic of sitting. Michael Fugit as asking, you guys were talking about making the pup sit with the lead rope on. I've heard different ways and I have taught it a couple different of ways. How do you teach to sit? to whistle and to get that snappy sit. He's not sure he understands with how the lead rope is tied into that, I guess.
0: Ray and I do it exactly the same way. I guarantee it. Um,
2: Ray explain that to us. Well, you're probably going to laugh at me. I actually have not used a rope. Um, but what, so what I do, what I've done is um, healing, starting at heel obedience, you know, whistle, sit, whistle, sit, whistle, sit, whistle, sit, whistle. And then once they're starting to do that, I'll reinforce that with a collar whistle and a nick. And then I just start um, some recall, you know, some simple recalls where they sit the dog out in front of me, call them to me, stop them halfway and get it real crisp. You know, at this point you've already taught them what the sit is at your side. You've been able to reinforce it. So if they start getting lazy or slow, when they're coming into you, you, they should understand what a correction's for and get it real crisp there. And then when I start it on the pile, I usually start it on the return and then um, just start trying to stop them fairly quickly when I send them. If I don't get a stop, stop them again. Um, I'm certainly not opposed to the rope. I know a lot of yourself, a lot of people that have done it. I honestly have not put the number of dogs through the yard that you have so if i had to do uh, a bunch of them at once i probably probably would use it but uh you could better explain the timing and the the with the rope on the sit
0: yeah yeah and we teach the same thing like when there's going through obedience you know blow this, you know teach them to sit blow the sit whistle teach them to sit at your side you know let them understand what the whistle means um in pile work we we teach it first on their return it, as well, you know, you're doing forest to pile that sort of thing. You, you know, you just you try to stop them on their return, and then we do. And then in my in our basic in our yard work, when I do it, when I did it, they drug around a long lead from through through three ana casting to forest to pile to sit to pile. To t- they drove they drove that lead around all over the place, and when we would, you know, they knew what the sit whistle was. But then we after we did forest to pile, we taught sit to pile. And now you got a dog. Hopefully, he's got really good positive momentum, some urgency to get to the bumpers, and we just put a long lead on him and 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 leather gloves. And what you don't want to do is let that dog get a whole bunch of slack and then just grab that. You you don't want to hurt him. That's not the smart thing to do. But what we do is now the dog knows to sit. You know, coming back to you knows to sit at your side. We kick him off with a back, and then you know however far your pile is. It's not very far. And let's just say it gets halfway there, and you just gradually start—you know—you blow that sit whistle, and you gradually start slowing them down. And if they stop, great. If they're stopping a little bit slower, blow it again, and grab onto that rope, and just slow them down real, real quick. And 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 then if they're crooked, you can pull the rope. You can bend down, pull the rope with a tweet tweet, and then stop them, kick them off with the back command, do it again. And we do that rope quite a bit. And and it and it tell you what it will it will make him sit real real quick. But don't just say, "Hey, I'm gonna go out teach my dog to sit to a whistle today with a rope." You gotta understand these dogs have been dragging around this rope now, you know, through three-handed casting, 4 pile, all those things. So it understands what that rope is. And I'm gonna tell you, if you're gonna teach a dog to sit to the whistle with a rope, you better be damn good at it. I have a scar on my ankle from that rope getting wrapped around it. And so does everybody that's ever worked for me. And the more you yell and scream to stop, 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 the faster that dog runs. I can promise you that. (laughs) And it hurts bad. But we we do, that's how we do ours. But we we teach it first. And then we, you know, after we got forced to pile, we try to break that momentum with that rope. Um, Not hurting them, but getting them to stop real, real quick. And I don't use a choke chain. Everybody uses choke chains or pinch collars. I don't like to use that because I don't want to hurt their throats or their esophagus. I just use a, a, flat, a flat collar is what I do.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next question. This one is from RJ Turner. He says, once you and the dog have a grasp on hunt test work, how to train for all excitements. Should you wait till the dog is ready for finished and master to keep the dog from getting possible bad habits and just skip senior or seasoned? Or should you try to go through senior and seasoned and learn through it all?
2: Ray, do you want to start? Or do sure, you want me to start? I, I, I can start. I mean, I think in general, I feel like the the more you take a dog to a t- and expose them to a test, Um, at any level, whether, especially with a young dog or uh, with younger dogs, any chance that you have for them to do something wrong that you can enforce, you can create bad habits. So in theory, I would say I would wait till the dog was at a ready to run the advanced level or, um, you know, but I do feel some people starting out, you have your first dog. You as a handler need it, could use some experience. I mean I can see a reason to come all the way up through the steps, but what I would say is I would have my dog almost ready for the next level before I put it in um, to start with. So right, so if I'm running HRC with the um, the first one is uh, I'm sorry, I'm out as with started, um, you know, I would want my dog well past the started level before I'm going to expose them to running in a test. Same thing with seasoned and finished. So, ideally, I would say I would try to expose them to test the least amount as possible. But if there's a strong reason, like this is your first dog, this is your first time going up through the, you know, and you can get some experience, that would be fine. But and the other caveat to that is if you start to go up through and you start to see something develop, you can quit and train for a while. You don't have to run every weekend once you start. So if you're running some seasoned or you know you're you start to have some line manner issues or some cheating issues, stop running and take a, take a period of time and, and train the dog until they're over ready to run. I see a lot of people that try to, as soon as their dog can do a double, they're trying to run the senior or they're trying to run the season, then you get that dog over prepared. And then when they get to that test, it's going to be very easy for both of you.
0: For sure. And, and
2: add, add
0: more to that is I always tell this to people, you could take an 18 year old to a strip joint, but it's still an 18 year old in a strip joint. It's not going to end well. It's you take a highly, highly, Energized, excitable dog. Just because it's doing the work doesn't mean it's mentally ready to go to that strip joint. You're going to jail. So just because <laughs> the dog can do that, just the dog, just 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 because the dog can run finish work, it has to mentally be ready for that excitement level, right? So it doesn't matter. It's not a race, and that's what drives me crazy. Everybody thinks it is. It's not a race. And, and how we do it here at the kennel, we start all of our dogs in the HRC program. And the reason for that is, is like Ray was just talking about, we can stop any bad behavior. Um, we usually start, We sometimes you run them and start them and get their 10 points. Most of the time we jump straight into season. And in HRC, you can talk to your dog at the line. So if it starts creeping and moving, that's sort where of you can stop any bad movement with sit Hear, heal. So now that dog's first experience in the hunt test world is a positive one because you are controlling the situation. You are stopping that dog. If you were to start in senior or master, you can't stop that dog, the lion, or you're failed. And most people aren't willing to give up their $100 entry fee because a dog is creeping two feet. All they care about is a ribbon, go and drink beer and handshake with your buddies. So most people aren't willing to grab that dog and stop that bad movement at, at, at an AKC event. So we start out in HRC because you can stop that, those bad habits. And how we do it here is we get their season title, we get their finish title, and then we go straight to master. We don't run senior. There's no reason to run started, season, finish, junior, senior, master. Because here's the thing, what's your goal? If your goals are on the grand or the master national or all age or whatever you want to do, why, why expose that dog to situations you can't control? You make them so test wise, you can't even catch them. So you need to look at this dog as, as a career. You need to manage this dog's career and you want this dog running at a high level when they're eight, nine, 10 years old and anything built that's going to last very long wasn't built overnight. So you need to slow way down and, and take your steps and, and don't put those dogs, even if they're capable of passing starter or junior, I'm with Ray. Get them to that seasoned senior level and then go do that. Because now you've actually let that dog mentally mature because mental maturity is way more important. Just because the dog misses a mark here, misses a mark there. And it fails, no big deal. Now, if that dog starts making noise, whining, barking, creeping, and you can't control it, then you're in trouble. If that makes sense,
1: I will let me add as an amateur here because I think that that when you said what is your goal is is a really important thing. I think a lot of people that I see in HRC, I think that their goal is the environment. And for us, for us amateurs that are not around other People who train a lot are not around professionals at all. Going to these hunt test days is a really, really special atmosphere, a really special experience. So I think if your goal is just to get to finish, may, maybe your goal is just the environment itself, and it, and it isn't the grand. But um, being at they those events ahead. is really, they is really right. Well, that may be someone's goal. I mean, as an amateur. You know, my my goal when I started certainly wasn't the grand. My goal was like, wow, I've never done this. Let's see what it. Let's see what I can do. Let's see. So I, I just think that the goal. It's a very special atmosphere for us amateurs to be in, to be around pros, and to be watching pros. It's it's a it's a unique special um, event to be at.
0: But Ray, let me ask you a question. Of in your field trial career, I'd be really interested to know this this what you think. The dogs that have all the bazillion derby points, do a lot of those make really, really good FC, AFCs, or NFCs, or do they kind of fizzle out after a really, really good derby career? What do you think the percentage
2: of that is? Ooh, that's a good I, – I couldn't tell you the percentage, but I could tell you in my experience um, – we had a couple really good derby dogs and they went on to be good all age dogs. One of them won a national, one of them's in the hall of the other one's in the hall of fame, but they weren't trained specifically to be derby dogs. They were trained to be all age dogs. And we ran derbies in the meantime. Um, They weren't trained just to run derbies. They weren't trained just for started or just for junior, or just for senior. Um, Even if your goal is that, I think, it's funny if you get a dog and you get your goals can change pretty quickly. So just kind of keep the end goal in mind, but there certainly has been back to your question. There's certainly been a lot of, of high, you know, high point derby dogs that haven't made all age dogs. And there's been some really good ones. And I think the dogs, how their training is managed, how their temperament is uh, because you can certainly do a lot of damage long term by continuing to run a dog that's having a problem you know, not watching field trials, not yeah. watching birds, line manners. Um, there's a dog that was high point derby dog that he, he's got his FCAFC now, but he's been continually battling a creeping, um, not a dog that I've ever had my hands on, but he continually dogs eight, nine, 10 years old. And he's still, the dog still creeps. You know, I mean, he, by running all those derbies and exposing to him to doing things wrong, in an environment that you can't correct them so many times, you can, you can certainly create long-term problems. Any good Derby dog that we've had was watch, sat still, watch their birds and was reliable in the water. And if any of those things started to slip, then we'd stop running them.
0: Yep. So you manage their career. And they ended up being nice dogs. And that's my whole point is manage their career Quit worrying about the ribbon in a time frame and, and train a dog for longevity and, and just slow down. Yeah, I, I
2: would say the number one mistake that I see uh, or hear and see a lot is people that are too quick to, to test their dog or not willing to stop if something comes up, you know, the, like, you know, noise or creeping or um, cheating or something like that. And the more times you expose them to doing something wrong, especially when you make them do it in training that's when they start to learn they're at the test and that's when you're going to have a long-term behavioral issue to deal with where if you see it, you can take a couple weekends yeah. off and maybe it never turns into anything more than a one-time deal. But the unwillingness to yeah. kind of take a step back because you want to chase those ribbons, you want to chase those points. And uh, you do yourself more long-term harm than good by, by doing that for sure. And some of that stuff you can't fix. You just have to try to maintain
0: it if it gets too bad and you've already you're already crossed. That and iodine. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of it. Well that's a
1: really good segue into the next one unless you guys have more um to speak on that topic. We're good. Uh fixes for creeping at the line. This comes from Jeff Meyer. Oh. Don't let it
2: start. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, try not to let it, but if it happens, then you have to deal with it, you know. So um, we have a drill that we used to go back to, and again, back to the yard. If we had a dog that was creeping, um, again, if it's only happening at a test or trial, you need to stop running it for a while. Um, But there's a drill in training, and we would have a gunner with a pistol and a pile of bumpers, I don't know, 40, 50 yards away. And we would, um, we called it a steadiness or a noise drill and used it for both things. What I was, what we're trying to do is create the expectation that the dog doesn't get to go until he does, until he sits or he's quiet. Right. So, so often these dogs that creep or they move or they're noisy, you correct them and you send them, you correct them and you send them. And it becomes this deal where the dog just is like, Hey, hit me so I can go get the bird. Well, if we're going to actually change that behavior, we have to reprogram. So to reprogram, we would have, that like I said, that gunner out there, he would shoot and throw. The dog moves or makes noise. You make your correction. And the next time the, he doesn't get to go, the gunner rethrows probably without a shot. Dog moves again, gets another correction or whatever. It's mostly a patience thing, but there is some correction involved. And they don't get to go until they sit to your standard and then once they sit to your standard they get to make the retrieve so that may be uh, you may literally just flip a bumper two feet to make it so boring that until they gets them to quit moving or quit whining or whatever it is and you can start to see them draw this connection that they don't get to go until they sit still and this happens over the course of Several days, they're not doing any marks in, in the field, and once you and, and then you are creating success and failure. Right? We we touched on that in the last episode a little bit. I feel like dogs learn from episodes of success and failure. So when they move, they there's your failure. Now you you simplify the task. They don't move. Now they have success. So I'm trying to create episodes of that to hope that to hopefully make that dog start to draw the connection. Hey, when I sit here quietly, I get to go get that bird. And then we take that into the field. I mean, you may do that for three, four, five, six, seven days. And then we take that to the field. Then I'm having the same standard when I throw marks and I'm going to start with singles and I'm going to shoot and throw. And if the dog moves, we're going to rethrow with less excitement and really try to, reinforce what they just learned in the field or in the yard and take that to the field and just try to reprogram them that they don't get to go unless they sit still this episode is brought to you by dave a banking app that's leveling the financial playing field Because when you download Dave, you could get up to $500 in five minutes or less. No credit check, no late fees. It's part of Dave's extra
1: cash account. Advance the money you need with no interest and then settle up later. Download Dave today
2: at dave.com slash Spotify. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash legal. Eligibility criteria and instant transfer fees apply. Banking services provided by Evolve member FDIC.
1: The playoffs are near, and you know what that means,
0: Alex? Yep, flipping bats will be staying up late and having all the fun.
1: From breaking down the most important stories and games, nobody's done what he's doing. Nobody. Not even Babe Ruth.
0: To interviewing baseball's biggest stars.
1: I felt like I was pitching more stress. I was trying to be so perfect. No one covers America's pastime like us.
0: So, as we sprint towards this year's World Series on Fox, please make sure to listen, follow, and subscribe to Flippin' Baths with Ben Verlander and me, Alex Curry.
1: Baseball is fun, and so are we. We're going to have fun, dang it!
2: We'll talk to you soon. Did any of that make sense? (laughs) Did I ramble too much? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And then...
0: You know, and sometimes what we do is in, in, um, in in like an AKC setup, I do like a reverse healing deal. Um, The mark comes out and you're standing up, no gun, no nothing. You're just standing up and you got a collar and the mark comes out, the mark hits. Then I slowly try to almost sneak away to the back. I start backing up and if that dog doesn't come with me, it gets collar pressure Pretty much continuous until that dog catches up with me, and then, and then and then he'll think she's getting sent. Then I may back up real slowly again with collar pressure. When that collar when that dog gets to me, I let off on of my collar pressure. Now your marking may obviously go down doing this type type of stuff, but you're working on its creeping, right? And eventually you start marking. Just so every time a mark comes out, it hits you slowly back away because you have to have that dog. When it creeps, it doesn't care whether you're there or not. There's zero part of a team when that dog does that stuff. So we need to keep that relationship with, hey, I'm the boss, you're the dog, you need to keep your relationship with me. You need to be at my side, and if I move, you move with me. And, And that's really helped me over the years deal with some of those dogs like that. And if the dog you start backing up, you give the dog collar pressure, and it doesn't come with you, then you're not giving it enough pressure to 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 change the behavior. So the pressure comes up until that dog comes back with you. Yeah, so we did sense.
2: a very similar drill. Uh, we used to call it automatic healing drill, and the only different we would preemptively teach it in the yard and use like a low level continuous press. same thing. When the dog's not next to you, out of my out of their circle, right, and there's no command, so it's they get told to heal once. Anytime they're yep. outside the zone, it's low yep. continuous till they're back next to you, let off the pressure. And so that was kind of the preemptive deal that we would do bef- and then do exactly what you're talking about. And when you've taught it like that, that low continuous usually has a pretty strong effect and those dogs will try to jump back pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, And, um, the other thing taught him in the yep. yard a little bit, if you have a dog, an older dog that's still creeping and is, uh, sometimes you can drag your foot a little bit on the mat or on the on the grass and i would almost we would teach them that dragging that foot a little bit came with that low continuous pressure so if they started to move in a trial and i would drag my foot a little bit a lot of times i could stop them
0: Yeah. Yeah. We do the same thing. And not a lot, you know, you can't do it too much, but we do the same thing. And, and and that was a good point. I don't, when I do that, I don't go heal, 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 heal. I say heal. When I first teaching it, I say heal and I start moving back and I say it very quietly after they know what I what what is expected of them. I quit talking. They have to pay attention to where I'm at period. So so as far as as far as creeping oh. goes, do
1: you, um do you expect perfection? Like if their butt comes off the mat at all, or what? What? How much do they have to move for you to uh, for uh, you to take issue with? That's,
0: it? that's a hard hard topic because th- there's some dogs that if they're too too steady, there's they don't mark very well and. Almost every dog's got its own almost like style at the line, if you would say. And I've correct, correct some of those dogs that were their feet were pattering and st- Now I'm not talking about moving forward or creepy. I'm talking about maybe some feet pattering mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And if I make their feet quit moving, they couldn't find a hamburger in a phone booth. Mm. But if I let them be them, they're pretty good. Now going into a national event, I'm not sure I would let. I wouldn't let them do it too much, but you still have to let them be them a little bit. And then there's and, cause if you make them be super steady, they, they just couldn't, they they just, they just couldn't mark as well.
2: You know, they,
0: they weren't the yeah, same I, mean, I think some of that
2: kind of stuff, like what, what age are we talking about here? You know, are we talking about as a young dog and a puppy, yeah, I yeah, would love yeah. to have a zero, you know, they would just sit like a little statue all the time and try to teach that from the beginning. Some dogs, like you said, they developed their own personality. Some of them might pat their feet a little bit or or crouch slightly, but if they're not moving forward, we think, okay, well, as long as they don't move forward, we're okay with a little bit of this. So they kind of, it kind of takes on and they have their own standard. You know, sometimes we used to get a lot of older dogs in for training. And so sometimes your standard evolves a little bit with the dog as it gets older. Um, You know, I would love to say from a, if I was starting a puppy from scratch, I would like to start with that no, no movement. And, uh, but the reality of it is sometimes there is a little bit and you have to find what's going to be, you know, what's too much. I, I tend to say zero forward movement. If I have a dog that I know has a tendency to move a lot or yeah. is just antsy. I, if I let them pat their feet, but they don't move forward. And that keeps, takes a little bit of that movement out of it without giving up, creeping or bird watching, then I'm okay with it. So that's the kind of stuff that you have to that'll evolve as your dog gets older. Um, the first time you make the dog sit and it doesn't mark perfectly, I wouldn't say, oh well, no see he can't mark when he sits still, so we're not gonna make him do that anymore. You know, that's not something that happens like yeah. one setup and you change your mind. That's gotta be Yeah,
0: that takes that takes, yeah. that, and I, that's what I meant. That that takes time. Um, and you'll find out I, I've had dogs that go into the grand and to the national that if I made them sit like a statue, they weren't worth a damn. Um, but that's like you said, an older dog that we we've understood yeah. that. And we know where we're standing young dogs. We like to see them yeah. sit real, real quiet because eventually a lot of dogs will start. There will be some sort of movement at some point in their life. I I've had, I have a few like red, uh, Georgie's brother doesn't move a muscle. He just turns his head, and that's not something that we harped on with him. That's just what he does. He doesn't make a peep. He doesn't move a muscle. I've never seen a dog so steady in my life. Hmm. And and that's just how he is. So and Flash is not as steady as that, but he's pretty steady now. But he's not as steady as that. And Isla, Georgie's mom, is just like red. Identical. Yeah. Never moved a muscle. All right.
1: It's just genetics good stuff. All right, next question. We've got Landon Poplin. He says, do you prefer more of a methodical dog or a fire breather when it comes to training hunt tests? And do you think the sport will remain a lab game or do you guys see more versatile breeds joining the sport in the future?
0: I want to... Uh, you go ahead. I want first, a sir,
2: dog. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying yeah. there isn't some yeah. really good methodical ones. But my personal uh, my personal preference is a dog that uh, runs hard and is stylish, and um, I would rather I'd rather miss a keyhole once for a dog being too fast than one that trots out to the birds. Yeah, and and
0: I I'm with Ray. I like the. I like the fast dog. I like the dog that's got really good momentum. I I like those dogs. But what I don't like is a dog that's like that that has zero team player in them. That drives me insane. All they care about is themselves. So I do like that. Now, the more more methodical dogs, I'm going to tell you, they're hard to beat. Sometimes they never make a mistake. Um, But I personally, I like a dog that runs a little bit harder, has a good, you know, Thought process, that sort of thing. And now I have plenty of dogs that their natural style is just slow and methodical, and they've ended up being great dogs. But for me personally, I, I like the dog that's got more power, more want to, more go. Um, but be careful. But every, all these amateurs, and I know a pilot, I'm like, I want that fire breathing dragon. Like, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> because we call those dogs, of, we call them a lot of them dogs, pro dogs. I mean, you could put me in, a NASCAR car and go around the track. But I guarantee you, I race, I wreck it. It's the same thing. Everybody wants that higher fire-breathing dragon until you got one, and then you're gonna be putting questions on this Facebook page about how do I control my fire-breathing dragon? So
2: yeah, I'm running fast is, is does not substitute control. You know, I mean, those dogs still they have to. You know, no. then maybe they take a little longer. Maybe they're trying to sit fast, and it just takes them a little longer because of all the momentum they have or the speed they have. But you know. Speed does not mean that you don't have to try or you get to you get to be out of control just because you run fast. And, you know, there's a big difference between methodical and what I would call methodical and, and slow, too. So, you know, you get some dogs that are just really, you know, the ones. There's a different. I mean, there's a lot of really, really good methodical dogs like you're talking about. What I don't, I guess what I would say I don't like is the ones that, just really look like they don't want to be there. And I would not say that about a methodical dog. Methodical yeah, dogs, they run, their ears are up, they're happy yeah, to the work. Yeah. They're just not as flashy.
0: Yeah, yeah. The 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 ones you were talking about are like the man made dogs that we've made run straight and we've made do this, and it's more of a job for them. I, I'm with you, Ray. I don't care for those as much. All right, we've got time for one
1: more question. This comes from Tanner Whitmire. He says, what does a full week of training look like for a young, finished master dog that's getting ready to start running the grand? How many setups on average are they running? And are they working on other things such as drills and your well-established grand dogs like Flash? Do they maybe not train as hard as the younger dogs besides when they are getting ready to run a national event? So it's kind of a two-parter there.
0: Yeah. Um, this will be really interesting for what Ray did with his with the field trial dogs and what we do with our hunt test dogs. Um, my more advanced dogs, the flash, the crew, the flashes and stuff, we typically run one really good setup a day. Um, you know, it involves four marks, three blinds, you know, that sort of thing. And usually it's just one really good setup a day. Um, the younger dogs we've got typically do two a day where they got a handling set up and they got a marking set up, that sort of thing. But, but the more advanced dogs typically get one really good setup a day and, and we're just tweaking, maintaining, trying to advance a little bit, you know, not overdoing it, that sort of thing. And, and um, my older dogs, they go every day. Uh, we take them, eight, Flash is eight now. He goes every day. If you don't take him, he's a. If he's not going to the vet to be bred, he's going to train. And if you don't take him to train, he thinks he's getting bred, and he's just a disaster. So we take him every day. Now the older dogs, the older ones that maybe have some joint issues and that sort of thing, we may back off a little bit. Yes, but if they're in good physical condition, um, they they go typically every day, and that's just that's their job. You know that that's what they do.
2: Uh, With field trial dogs, we used to do two to three setups a day, depending on uh, if we were on land, a lot of times we could get three done in a day with 24 dogs. If we're in the water, usually it was two. Uh, We were doing a lot of separate, you know, marks and blinds. So we weren't, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, six or seven birds in one setup. So we might do, uh, you know, we might do a water triple and a water blind. That would be two setups. We might do... Um, you know, two land triples and a double land blind one day, if it was cool and, that, you know, we could stay on land. Um, so probably, you know, but most of the time things were separated. You know, we did do marks with, uh, uh, marks with marks and blinds combination once in a while, but majority of the time they were separated. Um, but so a normal week would be probably 10 to 12 setups, uh, for the dogs that are training. Um, as they got older, it was a little bit dog dependent once they got to be seven or eight, a lot of times they would maybe get one day off a week. Like they'd get Wednesday off. They train Monday, Tuesday, get Wednesday off, train Thursday, Friday. Um, we did a lot of conditioning. So, uh, with the four wheeler and, and that would be a whole, a whole nother podcast. But, um, there would, we would condition, um, two to three days a week. So, uh, sometimes it was 15 minutes and we'd build up to 45 minutes. Um, but so those older dogs would maybe do a little less field work and a little more conditioning. Uh, younger dogs would probably get a little bit more on the setup lines and, uh, they'd probably only condition one or, you know, a couple days a week. Uh, we'd condition on the weekend. So they Saturday morning, they'd always get conditioned and then they'd have a day off afterwards. Um. So it just, and it depends, you know, as the dogs got older, we get nine, 10, you know, we had my last year running. um, I finished a dog in the national that was a, was a national finalist at 11 years old. So, I mean, those guys, and he was, you know, you had to manage and maintain and he didn't do every setup every day. Um, If we did a bunch of land, a lot of times those older dogs would do one land setup a day because they didn't need the repetition and the pounding. Now, when I say older, I mean, we're talking 9, 10-year-old dog or a dog that has a physical ailment that we were having to keep an eye on. Um, So it was really a little bit dog dependent, a lot of conditioning. Uh, We tried to limit their miles once they were, you know, they'd get days off. You know, they'd run a trial, they'd get Monday off. They might get Thursday off before the trial. Um, The last, um, it was actually the right year afterwards, we had one of the dogs that we had ended up being the high point open dog or high, sorry, high point amateur dog. She had 50 amateur points and she would train one setup a week and condition two days a week and had 50 amateur points in, you know, so she was a pretty special dog. Actually, she was just uh, elected into the hall of fame last year. So again, I mean, it takes a special dog to not, uh, not have to train very often, but um, yeah, Yes. You know, and with that being said, too,
0: sometimes we'll do a, a morning setup where, you know, it'll be four marks and two or three blinds. And then it would be, you know, obviously get hot in the afternoon. Then we'll move over and we'll just run a water blind.
2: Yep.
0: So that's, you know, technically two. So yep. just you run it like a simple, just a simple water blind. Yep. Uh, not simple, just, just a single water blind. And I will tell you in my career, there's been a lot. Not a lot, but there's been a handful of dogs like this amateur dog. I'll bet that amateur dog, if you'd have trained her every single day, she probably not have been the same dog. And there's some dogs that they just can't train every day. They're just, they don't have that fire for it. But if you could figure it out and manage their career, sometimes them dogs are fine training two or three days a week. And that's all they need to keep their attitude up. And then they, they perform great. Those dogs just just they're kind of like the Allen Iversons of the dog <laughs> world. You're like, you know, practice. What do you mean practice? And, and that's just kind of how they are. And and if you can recognize that as a trainer, and and manage your career, and and it drives you nuts to leave them there. You put them on the trailer, you tie them out, and that's what they do for the day. But you know, we're paid to to train the dog and and we do whatever the dog needs to get done to perform and if that dog only needs trained two or three days a week that's all it needs to be trained two or three days a week and there's some dogs that have to be trained every day cuz that's what they love to do so you've got to recognize that as a trainer I, 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 you know pull that choke pump the yeah. gas and figure out how to make that dog run and and I'll bet you that amateur dog if it trained
2: well she the weekend, was actually it wasn't her problem dog. was was more physical she was uh... Yeah, she was 10 years old and she had a bad shoulder and it was, she wanted to work and she could, I mean, that so for her, it was more making her limit her miles to, so you could go, and she got single staked and, you know, all those things just to try to minimize the extra pounding. And, um, I mean, she was the kind of dog that if she had held up, you could have trained her every day at 10 years old and she would have loved it, but, uh yeah it was a it was for her it was more of a wow. physical thing and she was a she was a grady daughter, and uh, she was one of those that didn't yeah. she just always wanted to do the right thing. so you know even though she wanted to train, she didn't have yeah. to, and she would still make the right decision yeah
0: and just, and the the biggest thing is train the dog in front of you just because you're you know you might have that dog that's a little bit on the lazy side when it comes to training but comes up really, really good at a test, and comes up really good that kicks the, you know, crap out of the test, you have to recognize that as a trainer. And if that, that, if if train that dog, and now I'm talking an advanced dog, you know, that has all the tools. And if that advanced dog only needs two or three days of training to keep its attitude mm-hmm. up, you need to recognize that and train that dog instead of, hey, my buddy's going out every day, you're going to do this. And then you just end yep. up melt- mentally melting that dog
2: down. Yep, I agree so with that 100%. So
1: you need to recognize it. Yeah. All right. Well,
0: is that it?
1: I think that's going to do it for today, Ray. Thank you for joining us. It's been great, these two podcasts. Well, thank and, you guys for having me. Knowledge. I
2: appreciate it. it was, uh, it's been fun getting to uh, discuss what we all love. And uh, just uh, thank you. Happy to do it anytime. And, uh, as always feed pro
0: Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Elliot. Another great podcast. Um, Elliot, you got anything to say?
1: I don't think so. It's just, this is, uh, you know, from an amateur perspective, all of this information is almost overload. I think I'm gonna have to go back and listen to all these episodes two or three <laughs> times each to digest it. <laughs> you guys are doing a great Appreciate job. You.
0: All right. Well, thank you guys. Everybody have a good night. Thank you for listening. See you at the line. Take that aim.